0: My name is Charles Flood, and I write books under my full name of Charles Braceland Flood. I've written a number of novels, including Love is a Bridge and More Lives Than One, and a non-fiction book on my experiences in Vietnam. That book is called The War of the Innocents and will be published this fall. In this series of talks on the writer himself, My talk deals with the writer's relationship to the principal organizations in his field. As I tell you about this, I wish you would parallel my words by considering the fact that for a writer, there are very few people to whom he can turn for help or advice. In a more regular job, there are older people in the office who may be able to advise a young man or woman on what is the smart move to make, but the writer is alone at his desk. No matter what he does, he cannot escape the fact that he is engaged in a solitary and often very lonely occupation. However, for certain purposes of self-interest, sometimes combined with idealism, a writer will join one of the organizations which furthers the interests of the world of writers as a whole. In this connection I should point out that there are many specialized groups. The Society of Magazine Writers, the Society of Military Historians, groups of mystery writers, which do not serve the field as a whole and will not be considered in this talk. As I describe the various organizations, many of which are belonged to by every type of different writer, I think you will be struck by the way in which each organization complements the others so that the writer sitting alone at his desk in fact has quite a few people looking after his interests. It is of course possible that he will also belong to any one of the three that I am speaking of, or all three. It is particularly surprising that these organizations mesh so well in the net benefits they produce for the literary field because each major group was started without reference to the others and all of them depend for their vitality upon small professional staffs aided by writers who volunteer their time. This whole effort is supported either by very modest dues from members or occasional grants from foundations so it is truly the world of the writers supporting their own interests let's look now at this writer who has some willpower a desire to write a typewriter and a lot of rejection slips the beginning writer the man who has never been published is obviously not going to be asked to join a professional association because no one is aware of his existence eventually if he is fortunate if he is the one out of every 30 aspiring writers who finally makes it into print at least once. He will begin to sell stories to magazines or find a publisher for his novel or nonfiction book. This may bring him to the attention of a literary agent who will act on his behalf in selling various rights to publish his work, but even at this point the fledgling writer's world is small. He may or may not know other writers through his own social life, but his professional relationships probably include only his agent and, in the case of an author of a book, one editor at one publishing house. He is no longer alone in this jungle where the odds are against him, but he has increased his circle only slightly, although in an important way. He has yet to come into contact with those organizations which try to further the overall and long range interests of the many solitary, self-employed workers like himself. The first professional association that he is likely to join is the Authors Guild. Under the parent body of the Authors League, the Authors Guild concerns itself with the men and women who make all or part of their living by writing things which are primarily intended to be printed, while the sister organization, the Dramatists Guild, represents those writing for the stage. The Authors Guild consists of 3,300 writers whose work ranges from poetry to science fiction. When added to the membership of the Dramatists Guild this represents 5,000 men and women who are the core of professional writing in the United States. In the words of the biographer Leon Adel, who is the current president of the Authors Guild, it can be defined as an association of property owners banded together for the protection of our property. If our beginning writer has now entered the professional ranks by publishing a book with a reputable publishing house, or has recently published three short stories or articles, he or she is invited to join the Authors Guild. Before explaining what the Guild does for the published writer in America, a few words on its history are in order. When one considers the length of the history of American literature, it is interesting to think that for the first 250 years of it, each writer was entirely on his own when it came to making financial arrangements with a printer or publisher. There was no organization to which he could turn to advise him as to the fairness of the terms he was being offered and there was no association which could develop basic agreements with publishers on behalf of writers as a group. This began to change near the end of the 1800s. Various organizations formed and died but in 1913 after two years of struggling the Infant Authors League had banded together 350 authors and dramatists who were willing to give the idea of collective action a try. The first president was the American novelist Winston Churchill, a distant relative of the British Winston, and the vice president was Theodore Roosevelt, known not only as a past president of the United States, but also as the author of many scholarly works of history and a number of books on his travels, adventures, and thoughts as a political reformer. In 1919, the Dramatists Guild emerged as a separate entity and has over the years developed and enforced the production contracts that govern the amounts paid to American playwrights by the producers of their plays. From the beginning, one of the primary functions of the Authors Guild has been to keep an eye on what does and does not go into those deceptively official-looking documents known as authors' publishing contracts. These are usually printed forms, each publishing house printing its own, with its own particular legal language the exact terms of each individual contract being typed in to suit the specific case. As many readers and all authors know, the usual method in which an author is paid for a bookstore sale of his book is to pay him a royalty, meaning a percentage of the retail price. These percentages can vary widely from individual contract to individual contract and they are often the least difficult thing to understand in a document which embraces such matters as sales in foreign countries, a possible sale of a novel to be made into a movie, the appearance of a portion of a book in a magazine, and so forth. Over the years, the Authors Guild has worked for the clarification and improvement of all these terms. It has constantly disseminated all its findings about questionable publishing practices to all of its members through its frequently published bulletin. What this means to the inexperienced author of just one book is that he can take his own experience with publishers and agents and compare it with the candidly reported experiences of many of his colleagues. If the author needs further assistance the guild office will provide it occasionally reaching the unhappy conclusion that what the author really needs is to retain a lawyer. The reverse side of this coin is that the guild endeavors to to perform one of the functions implied in the original concept of a guild. It indicates to its members what standard of ethics and professional conduct is expected of them in their dealings with publishers and with each other. Also, as befits a guild, it makes efforts through the Authors League Fund to provide some financial aid to members who have come upon hard times. It looks out after the interests of all its members in advising them of new markets that are opening up, new publishing houses being formed, new magazines being started. It keeps members abreast of the labyrinth of income tax problems that can confront a man who lives on very little for three years while he is writing a book and then, if he is very lucky, makes $75,000 in the fourth year when the book is published. In addition to these practical business matters, the Guild has repeatedly fought various attempts to censor the publication of books. Just as our new author's income for several years, his entire income may be determined by what is in one contract, So there is one law which is of paramount importance for writers. This is the Copyright Act, which is the author's only guarantee that the law will protect his right to the profits of his own writing. If it were not for this law, our new author's book could be reprinted by anyone who chose to do so, anywhere, anytime, in any number of copies, and sold without giving the author any percentage of the sales price. By the same token, it is this law which protects the author From having passages of his book included in anthologies without his permission and without recompense. The current Copyright Act, for which a crusade was led by such men as Mark Twain, James Russell Lowell, and William Dean Howells, was enacted back in 1909. Since that time this old law, which was designed only to cover printed works and plays on the stage, has had to try to cope with the invention of movies, radio entertainment, and television. Only now, partly as a result of efforts by the Authors League, is there a new copyright bill which might be voted into law this year. Ironically, the new bill comes at a time of technological changes and possibilities that present authors with really frightening prospects of how easily they might lose the profits from their works. In this age of mass, cheap photocopying, our author's book can be reproduced by a library or school on its own premises in any numbers for a price cheaper than the retail price per copy in a bookstore and when this is done the author gets nothing. Now a first reaction to this practice might be that you think it is a good thing that it will put more books in the hands of more people at lower prices but the net result will be to deny the income of writing to the author, deny him any income at all, force him out of writing and start a cycle which will dry up creativity at its source leaving the photocopying machines with no new books at all to copy a few years from now it is for this reason that the authors guild is making such a particularly careful series of studies and statements concerning photocopying as it is treated in a law which is supposed to guarantee that writers will have the profits from their labors the next organization that might come into our author's life is PEN a group with an obvious and intentional pun for a name The initials of PEN standing for poets and playwrights, essayists and editors, and novelists. Other members are historians, biographers, translators, and critics. PEN is the International Writers' Organization with 9,000 members in 61 nations, including countries as different as Bulgaria, Ghana, Argentina, and Japan. To join the American Center of PEN, our author must have two letters of recommendation from members. And his record of publication must meet criteria that are set forth this way. Two books of distinction, one book of exceptional distinction, or equivalent achievement in some other aspects of the literary world. If our author is accepted, he enters an organization that has a current membership of 1,000. PEN came into being in England shortly after the First World War, motivated by the desire of a group of English writers to overcome the hatred and mistrust that was felt among writers of different nations after the long conflict. Championed by John Galsworthy, who eventually gave the money from his Nobel Prize to PEN, the young organization attracted such members as George Bernard Shaw and began to institute a series of meetings among writers of different nations, each meeting held in turn in a different European capital. Finding themselves the only representative groups of writers from different nations who were meeting regularly to exchange ideas, thoughts, and practical information, PEN adopted in its charter the following language, affirming the members' determination to keep alive the best conditions for the freedom of literature. The PEN stands for the principle of unhampered transmission of thought within each nation and between all nations, and members pledged themselves to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong. European and world history was not prepared to be quite so kind to the free expression of ideas and the young organization was put to the test through all the years leading to the Second World War. Repeatedly many of the finest writers in Europe speaking in the name of Penn protested the jailing of intellectuals who had spoken out against oppressive regimes. Refugee writers from the continent poured into England and by the time of the Battle of Britain, Penn had members from 31 countries living in London and attending its meetings there. In the immediate post-war era, the American P.E.N. sent thousands of food packages to writers in every nation of Europe, and P.E.N. arose from the ashes of the war to deal with a new influx of refugee writers fleeing from Eastern Europe. Many of these have settled permanently in England or in the United States. In more recent years, PEN has developed swiftly in Asia and this year's international meeting is scheduled to be held in Seoul, South Korea. If our formerly new author, who by now in our projection of him has half a dozen books out and is a well-known writer, were to attend one of these international congresses, he would partake of the excellent hospitality that is part of the Penn tradition, but he would be fully aware of the seriousness of the work being performed by the two official delegates sent from each of the PEN centers around the world at these meetings the writers of the world join in resolutions condemning any conditions or specific acts that have harmed writers over the years penn has secured the release of many men who had been sent to prison in different countries in cases when it is clear that they have been jailed solely on the basis of what they have written and this is usually in opposition to a regime current or recent protests have involved cases in countries as different as Russia, Uganda, Spain, South Vietnam, Yugoslavia, South Korea, and Greece. When the delegates from the United States return home from the international meetings, the work of the American Center takes on its own character. Protests are made on behalf of American writers to American authorities if there is reason to think that any American writer is being imprisoned, censored, oppressed, or abused for anything he has written. As befits an international organization, The American Center of Penn is particularly active in the field of translation. Each year its Committee of Translators gives a $1,000 prize for the best work from any nation translated into English during the previous year, as well as a medal to that publishing house most deserving of recognition for exceptional work in bringing distinguished translations to American readers. The Penn Committee on Translation recently produced a much-discussed manifesto on translation pointing out the lack of recognition and financial reward for translators without whom few of us would be able to browse or study in the many rich literatures other than English. Suggested contract guidelines for translators in dealing with publishers are being developed and will be circulated throughout the world. Later in 1970 the American Center will hold the first purely literary translators conference meaning translators of artistic works as opposed to translators of textbooks, handbooks, scientific writings, and the like, the first conference of literary translators ever to be held in the United States. Translators are coming from as far afield as India and Sweden to attend in the hopes of improving the practical working and financial conditions of translators, as well as to refurbish a musty image and to make the field more attractive for young writers and scholars to enter as a profession. For our author in PEN, there are a variety of activities and programs in which he may participate. Penn is constantly entertaining visiting writers from other countries. A type of recognition by one's peers is, prohibited by the frequent, is provided by the frequent cocktail parties honoring authors on the publication day of their newest book. Leading American authors and playwrights who are members of Penn participate in panel discussions at the Penn headquarters at 20th Street and 5th Avenue. Among those whom Penn members have had the opportunity to listen to and ask questions of in informal surroundings during the past year are Edward Albee, Arthur Miller who is a former president of the entire international organization of Penn and John Updike. For those who wish to make some contribution to the city and the society in which they live there is the PEN in the City program in which writers work with children and teenagers in the poorest districts of the city talking to them about writing working with children in simple writing programs and counseling teenagers and adults who hope one day to become writers themselves. A final area in which Penn is useful not only to its Own members but to every writer both in the United States and abroad is in the compiling of its annual listing of grants and awards. These lists sold by Penn at cost for a price of two dollars list every cash prize and fellowship available to both American and foreign writers both here and abroad for which they may apply in order to receive money to help them meet their expenses while they write. Perhaps the surest proof that Penn is truly international and truly concerned with the fate of every writer is that the current listing shows an opportunity for an American writer to go to Afghanistan and be subsidized subsidized by the Afghanistanis while living and working there. The summit of prestige in writers organization is the third and final one I shall describe. This is the National Institute of Arts and Letters. While the odds against our beginning writer were thirty to one that he would never publish even one short story. The odds that he will someday be invited to join the Institute must be on the order of 1,000 to 1. The National Institute of Arts and Letters has 250 members divided among artists, composers of music, and writers, the writers being substantially the largest category at present. In effect, new members are elected as older members die. Each year a committee of writers considers the the names of those authors who have been placed in nomination for membership, makes its recommendations, and then the entire membership of the Institute votes on the candidate. Apart from being an honorary society, its work is described thus in its own words. The main function of the Institute, which is to stimulate and encourage the arts, is carried out by conferring honors and awards for work of distinction. In a recent year, the Institute spent $60,000 of its funds in encouraging younger writers, artists, and composers, as well as giving recognition and assistance to more established ones. These medals and awards are particularly prized by the recipients because they indicate admiration of their artistic efforts coming from those who are at the top of the field. In giving these prizes, the Institute continues a tradition begun in 1898 when those crusaders, Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt, in company with such men as Henry Adams and Woodrow Wilson, selected the first members. Within the Institute there was created, shortly after its founding, the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Its purposes and activities parallel those of the Institute but to advance from the ranks of the Institute to the 50-man membership of the American Academy is to receive the final accolade that the American artistic community can bestow upon a writer. So for the young writer staring happily but disbelievingly at his first letter from a publisher telling him that he is indeed gifted that his faith in himself was well placed that his words are indeed going into print in thousands of copies This has tried to be a brief sketch of those organizations which exist to help him, to encourage him, to protect him. He owes something of a debt to those writers who volunteer their time without pay in the work of these organizations and to the paid staffs who work hard in a field where the salaries are far from phenomenal. He owes a debt to the men in the past who have fought for the copyright he takes for granted, the reasonable contract he will now be asked to sign, The censorship he will not experience and the jails in which he will not be locked if we are all fortunate this new author will realize that stores do not mind themselves and then the precarious world of the writer's rights and concerns will pass safely into the hands of a new generation one more